For you, the listeners of my JavaScript story, Loot Crate is offering an opportunity to save 10% on any new subscription at LootCrate.com. Just enter the promo code BRIDGE10 for 10% savings. Loot Crate is one of my favorite things. Every month I get a box in the mail, costs less than $20, and it comes with all kinds of goodies. I have stuff from just looking at my shelf, Batman, Spider-Man, Ninja Turtles, Back to the Future, Lord of the Rings, Star Wars, and much, much more. So if you're a geek, a gamer, anything like that, and you want cool stuff to put around your office, cool t-shirts, comic books, etc., then definitely check out Loot Crate. To save 10% on your new subscription, go to lootcrate.com slash ruby. Again, that's lootcrate.com slash ruby to save 10% on any new subscription. Enter the promo code BRIDGE10 for 10% savings. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another My JavaScript Story. This week, we're talking to David Lukia. I, I, I think I got close. Now, David, um, do you want to give everyone just a brief introduction, remind them who you are? I don't think we've had you on the show for a while. Yeah, so I'm uh, David. You got pretty close. Last name is Lukia. It's uh, I got that from Germany. <laughs> and uh, I'm right now with a Canadian company called Bullish Ventures. Uh, we build... Uh, APIs and mobile and web applications for people uh, using our open source tools. And right now we actually uh, had the opportunity to work a little bit more on product work, which is mm-hmm. nice. We're four people, me in Vancouver, two in Calgary, Alberta, and uh, one other person in Argentina. And it's, it's a quite interesting time to work in JavaScript right now. And the last time I was on the show was a while ago, and I, I don't believe I said that much because it was a panel uh, about mm-hmm. um, jQuery plugin I've written uh, a long time ago to, to generate um, forms. And it, w- it was an interesting project. We discussed on the tools that we can use for um, generating, generating HTML forms. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I, I think... I'm in a panel. I'm usually more the kind of person that that listens <laughs> quietly. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to being able to talk a little more this time. Awesome. Yeah, you were on episode 150. Um, we talked about OIMs, and we had Richard Kennard and uh, Grant Cuff or Luff and and you on. And yeah, it's just it's interesting to just dig in and and see where people come from and what they what they've done and. Yeah, we, we want to hear from you. We want to hear your story. We want to hear what makes you tick. Um, and, you know, there are people out there that are going to hear your story and they're going to be like, oh, oh, oh I, could, I could do that or I could be like that or, I, you know, I have something in common with him. And, and that's, what we're, that's what we're after here. So um, I'm just going to go ahead and jump in with our, our questions. I sent you the questions ahead of time, so hopefully you've had a few uh, minutes to think about it or a few weeks to think about it. Um, but the first question is, is how did you get into coding? So I grew up on a goat farm in Germany. So nice. initially I didn't have that <laughs> much, was not exposed to technology and, and computers. I got my first computer when I was 12. Um, before that, I was tinkering a lot with electronics. Um, at the beginning, we just talked about uh, you being at the CES and li- li- looking at all those tools for kids to learn programming. Uh, I learned uh, or got familiar with technology by actually taking stuff apart and usually not being able to put it back together. But it was very uh, (laughs) informative nonetheless. And 
when I got my first computer, I, I started programming with what was the first real influence was probably Delphi, which is IDE that uses Pascal as its programming language. And in hindsight, I think it's still, I don't know if it's still around, but it was a good IDE because you could build user interfaces visually and um, it was really easy to get up and running and get started quickly. Uh And uh, I started programming there. I did some stuff I actually looked at a couple weeks ago. Uh, again, uh, with image <laughs> processing, and and I looked at it, and I was uh, it was sometimes you look at an old project and like, oh my god, that's horrible. What have I done? And the other times you look at it and think that actually was surprisingly um, interesting. <laughs> what I've done back then, right? So I, I've done some um, image processing and just build a thumbnail viewer, and um, eventually, uh, when we got online build a tool that helps manage frequently asked questions about the programming language. Mm-hmm. And that's in in Germany. So um, when I turned 18 back then, uh, you still got drafted for uh, military service. Right. But you can also do an alternative service and say, I don't want to I don't want to serve in the military. I want to do something else uh, more social. So uh, I uh, signed up to help a computer science student. He had a, a muscular atrophy. So I was helping him as in uh, just videotaping lectures at university and things like that. My, my usual plan, my actual plan before that was um, to do an apprenticeship, which is still pretty common in Germany. So most, uh, a lot of people, you can do a software development apprenticeship. You don't have to go to university. Uh, but he said, ah, come on, what can, what do you have to lose? Um, just sign up for university and, and see if you can get in. Uh, the problem was uh, that my marks from high school weren't that great, so I wasn't that optimistic. But <laughs> I did get in, and it turned out to be a great choice. Uh, my marks in university were a lot better than in, in high school. And uh, that's also how I how I ended up in Canada for totally non-work or programming related reasons. <laughs> cool. So it's it's interesting. I mean, a lot of people usually when I talk to people who get in and they get get a computer science degree, it's oh well, I kind of knew that that's what I wanted to do, you know, since I was a teenager or before. And it sounds like you were more along the lines of. Well, I don't think I can get in to get my degree, so I think I'm just going to, you know, I'll, I'll go do an apprenticeship or something, and it just kind of worked out the other way. Um, I'm curious, though, and this is a conversation that I have with a lot of people, how critical do you think a computer science degree is? Personally, I really enjoyed doing the degree just because it was really interesting to be uh, digging down to the very basics of things. Uh-huh. And I think... I'm probably in a, in a smaller camp of people that would say that it is important to a, uh, to an extent to to get some kind of a degree. To me, it's always been important to get down to the bottom of how something works, right? Because that makes it a lot easier to understand how all those things mm-hmm. fit together. In JavaScript, we have to if you have a lot of frameworks, right? If you learn the basics of the language and how the HTTP protocol works and things like that it's a lot easier to to pick up on a new framework and look at it and be a little more naturally pick it up. So 
to me, I think personally, it was very, very helpful uh, because you just had some of the things you don't like learning about or you don't like doing, but that are pretty essential for a basic understanding of how computers and programming languages work. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's tough to to learn that through personal discipline. I don't know if I would have had that discipline to to do that, to always learn the very basics of the things that I'm working with every day. So um, I think it's still a personal preference, but I wouldn't rule it out categorically and Mm -hmm. say, no, you don't need a computer science degree. I think it's an interesting conversation to have. I mean, I have a computer engineering degree and it's funny because I have some people and they're like, well, do you think you needed to get it? And part of me is thinks, well, I don't know what it's like not to have it. Mm, yeah, and it's true. so I don't know if it, you know, I, I don't know how much difference it makes, right? Compared to somebody who doesn't have one. I see people coming in and being successful without them. But at the same time, yeah, you know, you, you go through kind of a disciplined uh, curriculum on, on that and you learn a lot of the, the things that you're talking about there. Um, at the same time, I learned a lot of things in my computer engineering degree that I never used once I graduated. So it's, it's kind of a, you know, I, 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 I don't know. I see, the, I see the argument both ways. I don't think either way is the wrong way to do it. And I think really what it just comes down to is if that fits where you want to wind up and it fits how you learn these things. And it sounds like you're more the type of person that wants to have the deep understanding and a regimented way to learn it. And for other people... You know, they just want to go out and kind of cowboy their way through it. Yeah. And yeah, it just depends on which way is really going to work out for you. I, I, I kind of want to move on to the next question just just to because I'm curious. How did you get into JavaScript then? So I, I did do some website development. And uh, back then, you, if you wanted that, you also did your own hosting, <laughs> uh-huh. um, which... Uh, I, so that's part of it. How I actually got into JavaScript was actually uh, during my university, I was working for a company. It's not really an internship. It's more a working student kind of thing. So uh-huh. next to going to university, I also worked for a company that was located directly on the BMW headquarters in Munich. Oh, nice. So you could actually walk through the engine manufacturing and see how they put together the M-series engines. So that was pretty interesting. Nice. And what they did was they build uh, web-based tools to do quality analysis. So if you have uh, if you're drilling a hole in the engine, you have to make sure that it is within a certain tolerance. Uh-huh. And the software they built basically took all the measurements and did an analysis and said, oh, this is out of tolerance. You probably have to change the tool and things like that. And back then, uh, the main, it was all mostly Java applications that were server-side rendered. And the way to build dynamic applications was Google Web Toolkit. Uh, oh, wow. I probably have to explain that because a lot of people might not know that anymore. Um, it's uh, basically a Java framework that you can use to put UI components together. Uh-huh. And then it compiled it into JavaScript so that you could build dynamic applications. And I, I was back at that time, I was learning about design patterns in Java and uh, a lot of the technical side of things. And the Google Web Toolkit approach kind of felt kind of weird because I always thought, well, 
eventually you'll end up having to write JavaScript anyway. So I started doing some research and what it was called back then and the approach that I really liked was called thin server architecture. I think uh -huh. by now uh, we're just calling it APIs right? <laughs> and having your Java app a JavaScript application from the client talk to it. That I found super interesting. It's actually been with me ever since I first read up on that. And I thought this is a great way. I'm going to build small, thin server applications slash APIs and then have my JavaScript uh, in the browser talk to those and do all the things that I would usually do in Java on the server. Uh -huh. And I started doing some research, and it turned out that such things as testing frameworks, uh, build tools, and et cetera, it was in 2007, uh, did not really exist uh, to the uh, extent that we know it from Java. Uh, the only thing that I found, two things that I found, was Dojo, which were pretty much uh -huh. the pioneers in almost everything JavaScript, large JavaScript application related. And uh, JavaScript MVC, which was, I think, pretty much the first client-side framework in the style of things like Backbone and Angular. Uh, it was modeled after, especially the first versions, uh, Ruby on Rails. So it was basically JavaScript, uh, Ruby on Rails for, for JavaScript. And as you model layer, instead of talking to database, you were talking to your to your thin server API. And I really liked that approach. Uh, it was a lot to take in at first, but it, it really helped in building that kind of application that I had to and wanted to build at that company because there were bigger, more dynamic applications that you couldn't just do with jQuery, which was the big known thing at that point in time. So uh, that's what I ended up with, and I've been working with that framework, which is now done JS and CanJS for uh, a long time. It's been around uh -huh. for a long time too. Um, we've been now. I've been doing a lot more uh, React Native. So uh, the front end stack changed a little bit, but the whole idea of separating and building JavaScript applications, especially on a large scale and making them maintainable and testable has been yeah with me ever since pretty much that's interesting and we've done shows it's funny you mentioned all these different technologies we've done shows on all of them we've had uh dylan and kit from uh dojo we've had i'm trying to remember who we had from dunjs and canjs but we've talked about all these different things and their evolution through javascript uh justin meyer is who we had yeah. from uh, you know, DunJS and CanJS. And yeah, it's, it's, it's just interesting to see how this has all evolved. I mean, I remember looking at Dojo way back in the day, kind of as an alternative to jQuery. And, uh, you know, it's like, oh, what is this all about? And then, you know, I got sidetracked with other work and never actually did anything with it. But um, it's, it's interesting to see how these things have evolved. And they're still around, which is also kind of interesting, not just from the standpoint of, oh, we've got these old technologies that are still, you know, out there kicking it around, but you know, they've evolved just like these other JavaScript frameworks have. And it, it just makes for really, really interesting growth and uh, areas to learn in JavaScript if you're out there looking for something a little bit different. So what, what projects have you worked on that you're proud of in JavaScript? So the most notably right now is probably Feathers JS. It's a, we call it a real, a rest and real time API layer, 
Um, it's a JavaScript framework that um, works in Node and React Native in the browser. I'm debating if I'm going to take a step back and tell you how it came to be or if I'm going to explain what it does. <laughs> but I think we start gonna... with what it does and then we can... Exactly. So, um, came from. so uh, what it does is it's basically... It's generally put into the um, category of web frameworks like Beer mm -hmm. and Express. It's kind of a little less and more than that at the same time. Um, so what it does is it provides an, an architecture for you to uh, build around in order to either provide APIs or consume them and also get uh, real-time updates from those APIs if you're using a protocol that supports that, like WebSockets. And it also has a mechanism for implementing certain workflows. If you, for example, create a user, you have want to send a welcome email. Uh, and it has a mechanism to uh, protocol independently create those different workflows uh -huh. and um, implement implement those using different different protocols. So right now it supports um, REST, HTTP. So um, you can create a, it is kind of, I like how minimalistic it is because it's much like Express and it builds on top of Express as a server. So you can use all of Express functionality, but instead of having to always write all those different routes and then make your database calls, uh, all of that is abstracted in this uh, concept of services uh -huh. that basically just provide uh, CRUD, like create, find, get, patch, and remove functionality. And uh, because those are all standardized, it can also automatically send uh, real-time updates to clients. Nice. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm really happy with, with um, how that turned out. And um, there's a lot uh, going on right now in that, in that area. Interesting. So, so how did you come around to uh, creating this? So... And that came again back from uh, university when I was looking, like I mentioned, the thin server architecture idea. And uh, I was tasked with my final thesis. Um, usually you write it when with the company you're with uh, and they give you a topic and then you do some free work for them. Uh, I didn't want to do that. I had an idea of uh, writing uh, about a an abstraction layer for different remote procedure called protocols. Uh, that was in, in Java. And the idea was basically to, to take uh, SOAP, uh -huh. <laughs> which nobody uses anymore. Um, it used to be an acronym for Simple Object Access Protocol, but then they dropped that name because it turned out to not be simple at all. <laughs> um, I built some SOAP apps. I can, I can definitely <laughs> right? relate, yeah. <laughs> Um, uh, remote method, the Java remote method in, in, invocation protocol, XML remote procedure call thing. And the third one was a mere fairly new concept that was called representational state transfer, or uh -huh. we all know it as REST now. And the idea was to just have the same Java interface that is exposed through all those um, different protocols. And I implemented that in Java. I wrote about three times as much about it than I was <laughs> than I needed to, um, and that was back in 2010. And then I moved to Canada for totally unrelated reasons. Uh -huh. And uh, Node came around, and I saw that that was a great opportunity to re-implement re the same or a similar thing uh, on a web 
framework kind of level. And uh, Node turned out to also be a great platform for uh, real-time updates. And the whole architecture of using those CRUD services uh, turned out to fit really well into also being able to send real-time updates. So if you call the create method, I kind of know that I created something so I can send a created event to all the clients that are connected to a real-time connection. And the same with updates and um, removed items and things like that. And it turned out to yeah work really well for Node. So it's been around for a bit. And two years ago, a friend, uh, Eric, that I'm at Bullish with now, uh -huh. and uh, we ran a JavaScript meetup in Calgary for a long time. We uh, looked at it and we were like, okay, are we, are we going to just use this as a pet project or do we want to invest some time into it and write some more complete documentation and things uh, like that, which is what we ended up doing and made an announcement of uh, uh, version two, uh, which in reality didn't change that much, but it changed a lot of the perception and how it's viewed. And it had a little more, it had some uh, database adapters, so you could stand up a full API in 20 lines of code. And uh, that was, I think, quite appealing to people. Right. Well, cool. So what are you working on now? My uh, favorite, uh, the most fun project. So I'm still working on um, feathers. We're uh, trying to just improve small things, but not change uh, change it significantly anymore. Um, it's been fairly stable, which is kind of nice. Uh, but my most fun project that I'm working on right now uh, on the side is uh, what I dub MySAM. Um, it's a natural language processing platform. Well, that's actually a little too technical. What it actually is, is a, a digital assistant uh, that you can in the browser that you can write plugins for and talk to, and it's a lot of fun. It was, it's a lot of fun, been a lot of fun for me because for the longest time you program, and then when it works, you're you're happy that it works. When it doesn't, you're mad <laughs> that it doesn't work like <laughs> you wanted it to, right? Uh, uh, this one is it's using machine learning, uh, so you can teach it new skills, and it was interesting to me because it was the first time. Uh, in a while that uh, I was surprised that the software did something that I didn't expect it to do and it was still the right thing. So uh, it's a really, really interesting field to me and a really interesting opportunity and how we might be programming in the future. Um, just to not having to program each individual step, but being more uh, of a teacher to your software and um, being able to change the software while it's running and changing how it's behaving while it's running. Um, it's a fun little project. I'm just writing up some documentation because that is usually a the most work and <laughs> the uh, the hardest thing to do well. But um, hopefully, I'll be able to uh, just write a publishing post about that soon. Cool. Very cool. Now, is all that written in JavaScript? Yes. Uh, it's it works. Initially, it had a node uh, server and an Electron application. Uh -huh. uh, then Google ripped out the voice recognition of the in the Electron application. Okay. So uh, I changed it to run in the browser only because, unfortunately, a, lo a lot of browsers are hide the voice recognition behind a flag. Uh -huh. and the only one that has it built in 
is uh, Chrome. Um, and then the Node server, it turned out that all the uh, machine learning and natural language processing parts, which is the beauty of JavaScript, can actually run in the browser just as well. So uh, you can now run the natural language processing part either in the browser or on a Node server. But the default behavior is for everything to just run in the browser itself. So it's all written in JavaScript, and you can write plugins in JavaScript and HTML. And yeah, just make it do new things. Um, I had uh, talking about home automation, which is actually a very fun uh, thing to do if you're talking to your browser and it turns on the lights. Yeah, it's kind of it's kind of uh, that's the kind of thing that I found really interesting. Instead of just having a, the pre-done little black box that does things or doesn't, uh, being able to make it behave the way you want it to and listen to the commands that you train it to listen to. Makes sense. All right. Well, the last part of the show is picks. Do you have some things you want to shout out about on the show? Do you run your own freelance business? Or maybe you're thinking about picking up some business on the side. Well, then you need FreshBooks. FreshBooks is the quickest and easiest way to get invoices out to your clients. It's easy to use. It works anywhere available from any device uh, on the desktop, iPhone, iPad, Android, and all of your data is backed up and secure. And it makes it really easy to get organized and get paid. You'll be tracking time, logging expenses, and invoicing your clients in no time. You can also save time billing, freeing up several days per month to focus on the work that you love, and you get paid faster. FreshBooks customers are paid on average five days faster because there's a link on the invoice that says pay me now. And it's a great way to grow your business. Plus, FreshBooks is offering a 30-day trial. That's right, 30-day trial if you try them out. So go to gofreshbooks.com slash devchat and enter devchat in the how did you hear about us section. Once again, for a 30-day trial, go to gofreshbooks.com slash devchat and enter devchat in the how did you hear about us section. Yeah, so um, my first one was another podcast. It's called idieudie.com. They are talking about, uh, they're saying, considering dark alternative music, uh, which is, I, I really like uh, all kinds of industrial dark electronic, things uh -huh. like that. Uh, they're talking about many of those things because there's a lot of interesting things happening in North America right now, North America right now. And yeah, it's, it's great for me to keep up to date and I highly recommend if you're kind of interested in that kind of music, to, to listen into them. And uh, my, my second pick, is actually, I read last week, it was a, a longer post that was called uh, How to Fix Facebook Before It Fixes Us. If uh, you haven't read it yet, I found it really interesting. It was very well researched. Uh, there was a lot of uh, detail in it and um, just more critical thought about what does it mean if one company has so much of our attention, social interactions, and well, and I mean, in our uh, field, also developer um, skill. So uh, it's a longer, it's a longer read, but I found it really interesting. Awesome. Um, I'm going to go in with a few picks of my own. Um, so as you mentioned, we were talking about CES beforehand. And uh, there were a whole bunch of just really cool things at CES. And uh, some of them I think I'm probably going to invite people onto the different shows to talk about. And some of them I'm going to, you know, I'm, I'm going to highlight them. I have probably 20 or 30 videos of different products from CES that I'm going to cover. 
But uh, some of my favorites, uh, just to throw things out. In fact, I think I'm just going to throw out the ones that I got demo units on. Um, so one of them is called the Merge Cube, and it's an AR toy. Um, you can actually get it at Walmart right now. And what it does is it has this cube and then it has an app for your phone. And, uh, you know, so you point your phone's camera at the cube and then you can pick the different apps you want to play. So it has a whole bunch of games and educational things that you can do with this uh, AR cube. Um, and uh, they also sell uh, the AR VR headsets that you slide your phone into so you can run it that way if you want. And that was really cool. Uh, incidentally, the company also had kind of a laser tag AR or VR system that they had put together. And essentially what it is, is it's, you know, it's the laser tag gun. And um, so you slide your phone into it and then it uses your phone's accelerometer to, you know, pick up the movement of the gun. And then um, it gives you a VR setting and then you have, uh, you know, the, the dummies that you're shooting at and they shoot back. And so, you know, you, you're running around this virtual environment, um, you know, in your, you know, AR, VR uh, setting. Anyway, it was really fun, fun toy. Um, and I think that's coming out later this year. So, yeah, I'm going to pick that as well. Um, and I, I don't think I have a video for that one. But uh, anyway, I'll see if I can find a link for it. Um, the other ones that I got, there's a company called Primo. And they have a little robot. Um, it's geared more toward kids ages like four to eight and it's a programming toy. Um, and there were a whole bunch of those at CES. Uh, and I know people are interested in, you know, how do I show my kid code or how do I teach my kid some of the thinking skills that go into writing code? And so what this one is, is it has little plastic uh, blocks that go, they fit into these holes in, in the board. And so you, you have like three rows of four holes that you stick the blocks into and then the blocks all do different things like move forward, turn right, turn left. Um, and then there's another block that is run the sequence in the fourth row. And there are four holes in that fourth row. Um, and so you can essentially build a function in that fourth row. And then you can tell it to run the function, which is kind of fun. Um, and then they also come with manuals and a, a kind of a fabric pad that you put on the floor. So they, they gave me their expansion for Big City. And so the idea is, is that it has a story in there. You know, your, you, you or your robot, I haven't opened it yet, um, you know, has to go to the grocery store. And so here's your apartment. Here's the grocery store. You have to program your, you know, so the turn rights and turn lefts and everything to get from your apartment to the grocery store and things like that. And so it does a whole bunch of interesting ones. They also have mats that uh, don't have the color on them, so you can color them with fabric markers and stuff. And that was a really cool toy. Um, and then the last one that I got is from a company called Octagon, and you can get these cards also today on Amazon and stuff. And they're augmented reality cards. So the ones that they gave me are the professions. So you can like, uh, you have the librarian or the king or whatever. And, you know, my kids were just having a great time just, you know, you just point your phone's camera at the card and then it shows it. Um, the demo that they had at CES, they showed me the animals. And so they showed me the monkey card and then they pulled out the banana card and the monkey, the monkey, the VR or AR monkey would follow the banana around the desk. And then when it caught up to the bananas, it would pull one off and actually, you know, peel it and eat it. And so anyway, just really, really fun stuff. Um, you know, I got into a whole bunch of other IR, uh, augmented reality stuff and uh, programmable stuff. 
uh, IoT stuff because I know that people are interested in that stuff. So if you're interested in what I saw at CES, some of this stuff is just kind of cool. Oh, gee, I'm really interested in this stuff. And some of it is stuff that have APIs or SDKs or whatever, depending on if you're a mobile developer or a, uh, you know, a, a web developer, how you can interact with these different systems. So uh, definitely check those out. Um, those should those videos should be up by the time this goes up. So just go to devchat.tv slash C slash devchat TV and um, you should be able to find the playlist for uh, CES 2018 and uh, we'll have a whole bunch of stuff there. Um, I just had a great time looking at all that stuff and uh, meeting all of the the innovative people that are there, you know, doing interesting stuff. So anyway, I'm also probably going to do a video, just kind of a, a redux or recap of CES, just to kind of give an idea. Okay, look, these are the trends that I saw. These are the things that have kind of gone to the point where uh, the big companies have picked up the technology and are developing it in their products. And then these are the things that I see that are coming up, you know, uh, with the newer inventions and newer things that are out there, you know, because there were new medical devices that were really interesting to look at and things like that, um, you know, and just kind of open that up. But yeah, I also did a few videos from vendors like uh, Netgear and stuff like that. So if you're looking at routers or, you know, connected devices that do, uh, you know, expand your Wi-Fi network or connect nicely with those things that I, I covered a lot of that as well. So anyway, um, I guess this is an overall pick for CES, but anyway, had a ton of fun. And, uh, you know, just want to thank a lot of those vendors for, you know, being willing to show me what they've got. And um, some of these companies are also going to be sending me review units of their stuff. So if you're interested in uh, knowing a little bit more about them, just keep an eye on that channel because I'll probably add to it as the year goes on. Um, oh, two other vendors that I also got products from that I'm going to be trying out. One I got before the show and the other after the show. They're both wireless headphones, kind of like the Apple uh, AirPods. Um, but you know, they have different levels of functionality. One is from Broggy. It's the Broggy Pro or the Dash Pro. And, uh, those actually have like the, the kinds of sensors that you get on the back of the Apple watch or the Fitbit that, you know, get your pulse and stuff. And, uh, they, they do a ton of stuff and I'm going to be doing a review on that. And then I got some other ones from a company called crazy baby. And they're also the wireless headphones and they, they both connect to your phone via Bluetooth. Really, really cool stuff. So if you're looking for something like that, uh, you either have an Android phone or you don't want to spend the money on AirPods for one reason or another, or you're just looking at your options, um, I'm hoping to be able to give you some options that way. All right. So before we wrap up, uh, how do people find you online if they want to follow you or see what you're working on these days? Um, it's on GitHub and Twitter. It's D-A-F-F-L. I don't tweet out that much, but when somebody talks to me, I'll talk back. <laughs> so... Uh, I'm available probably best through those two channels. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you for coming and talking to us. It's always interesting just to see, you know, the, the progression through a lot of these things. And it, you've, you've done some things that I think a lot of other people think about doing but haven't done, like, you know, writing a framework and things like that, um, or at least being involved in writing a framework, because uh, I know that a lot of those are a team effort. But anyway, um, mm. yeah, uh, just want to thank you also for your contributions to the JavaScript community and... We will come back next week with another story. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.